0: ABC Listen podcasts, radio, news, music,
1: and more. Ignition sequence start. We
0: choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things.
1: Three, two, two, one. Power plant. That's one small step for man.
2: One giant leap for man.
3: Wait a second, Mister Armstrong not so
0: fast.
1: Fruit fly goes where no man has gone before.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, fruit is the very first earthlings in space.
3: I'm Ann Jones, and what the duck is going into galactic planetary mission today, because just like the batches of E. coli that NASA's sent up into space, we're not the expected cosmonauts. But we might just be successful in space anyway. And really, humans have been flinging unsuspecting animals into the air for as long as they've had arms, probably. In fact, when testing the hot air balloon in 1783, a rooster, a duck and a sheep were hoisted aloft under the gaze of Louis XIV, who must have been slack-jawed in wonder as the hot air balloon floated upwards with the test pilot, the duck in control. And trying things out with animals first continued on through history, with animals being elevated, no pun intended, into roles that humans probably should have taken.
2: Yeah, essentially, of course, they were wanting to make sure that travelling into a new environment, and space was a completely new environment in so many ways, they needed to be sure that it was safe before you wanted to send people, you know, beyond the Earth. Kerry Doherty OAM
3: is the heritage officer with the Australian Space Agency. Yeah, she's a space historian and we'll be hearing more from her in a minute.
0: So the first earthlings in space were fruit flies and they were traveling on a Nazi rocket.
3: James Foley is an illustrator and author whose kids book about an elephant in space is called Stalophant and it required an inordinate amount of research.
0: The United States launched them in a V2 rocket. And the thing that fascinates me most about this is that this is a V2 rocket they captured from the Germans at the end of World War II.
3: I like that they're recycling. <laughs> but also, when you think about it, even in Australia, we've got like fruit fly exclusion zones. There's programs that cost millions of dollars to keep these flies out of places, and here we are sending them into orbit.
0: Exactly right, exactly right. I guess they just wanted something really, really small and something that was easy to test, easy to put quite a few of them into a small rocket. And they were looking at, is there any possible sort of genetic changes to these animals when they're exposed to radiation? This is, you know, they're basically testing all these animals as guinea pigs before they send real people. They even did send a guinea pig as a guinea pig up into space before they sent humans. Yeah, this was the Vostok
3: flights from 1961.
0: It was the first guinea pig in space, actually, and it went up with some frogs, too. There was some mice, some plant seeds, all sorts of things. And there was also a dummy, a mannequin, in the spacecraft, and it was called Ivan Ivanovich uh, by the Russians, which is like calling someone John Johnson, you know? They wanted to test the ejector seat on the re-entry. Now, the thing about the capsule was they wanted to save space, so they had the animals in canisters and cages inside the dummy. So these guinea pigs, these frogs, everything, they were inside this dummy. And then on re-entry, this capsule comes screaming down through the atmosphere over some remote Siberian village. And then they do the ejector seat. And this dummy goes flying out of the spacecraft, parachutes down, lands safely in the snow. All the animals survive. But a whole bunch of villagers who are nearby freak out. They've heard this big bang in the sky. They've seen some human figure come parachuting down. They all thought that an American spy plane had been shot down. So they all run up to this mannequin and start beating it up. I I mean, in the visual in my head, because I'm a cartoonist, I imagine the, the dummy just sort of collapsing and all these animals scurrying out. But pretty soon all the Russian scientists all showed up and said, what are you doing? This is our dummy. Look, you take its helmet off. It has a piece of paper over its face that says dummy. What are you doing? (laughs) Um, And the the villagers would have been so confused. They wouldn't have had a clue. But yeah, luckily the animals uh, survived as far as I know.
3: Sent into space, ejected from the capsule, then beaten by Cold War era peasants upon your arrival back on Earth. Such is the life of an animal used
2: for space exploration. You might remember this was the period of the space race. Both America and Russia were were vying to beat each other to get the first people to the moon. But of course, they also needed to be sure that it was possible for uh, living beings to make that trip to the moon.
0: In 1968, the Soviets sent a mission around the moon called Zond5.
2: That included various groups of animals.
0: Horsefield tortoises, sometimes called Russian tortoises or step tortoises, um, it had some mealworms.
2: And various types of fruit flies.
0: Some wine flies, some plants, some seeds, some algae, some bacteria. They sent this around the moon. It was completely automated, of course, cause you know, you can't train a mealworm to press buttons on a spacecraft. And that was before Neil Armstrong walked on the moon, you know, um, so it was pretty incredible
3: they have experienced, this motley, Noah's Ark-type crew.
2: Ignition
1: sequence start.
2: A rocket is essentially a controlled explosion, you know, when a rocket takes Three, off. Two, so they ignite the engines, the thrust builds up, there's a huge roaring, the rocket itself begins to vibrate just from the thrust that's being built up. And that can be heard within the rocket itself, this tremendous sound. You know, and then of course when you actually take off... You're being pushed back in your seat by the enormous thrust. Of
3: course, at the start, that was the point. We didn't know exactly what the experience would be like or how dangerous it might be, so we used animal stand-ins. And the Soviets got there first, with Sputnik 1 putting the proverbial beep up the opposition. And though they'd been using dogs as human stand-ins on rocket testing actually for a while, it was Sputnik 2 that took the first mammal to space.
0: They preferred dogs for some reason. I'm not sure why. Maybe it was easier for them to get a hold of dogs. And also they chose stray dogs because they thought that dogs that had survived harsh Russian winters on the streets of Moscow would definitely be very, very resilient. More so than, you know, a Parisian lapdog or Pomeranian or something. So they chose these really tough street dogs. And that's what Laika was. She was a street dog.
3: And you can imagine that Laika's milestone really put the wind up the scientific and political elite of 1950s America. Especially because they actually managed to intercept some of the sound of the dog, proving that she survived the launch. Here's a commercial release of the recording, courtesy of Folkways. This is the Smithsonian Museum's record label.
2: Next is the heartbeat of Laika, the dog, in Sputnik No. 2, recorded on November 6, 1957.
3: It was narrated by Professor T.A. Benham, who, side note, produced science education records for the blind.
2: Fading was quite severe that night on account of Aurora Borealis display. So we have taken 10 good clear heartbeats, repeated it several times and spliced them together. The splicing is not perfect so that the break in rhythm is obvious.
3: Is it just me, or does that heartbeat sound eerily like a smallish Jack Russell sort of dog barking in space?
0: Particularly, you know, they sent Leica up into space, the Soviets. They knew she wasn't going to come back. They knew that they hadn't got to figure out a way to send her back yet. She didn't last more than a couple of hours, and it wasn't because of the re entry of the capsule or anything, it was because of a malfunction in the heating and cooling inside the the capsule she was in.
3: It's likely she overheated in the first couple of hours into the flight, with some reports having her heart rate at double what it was when she was resting. The capsule that contained her body continued to spin around the earth for another 160 days or so until it broke up and the pieces burnt up in the atmosphere in a line from New York to the Amazon. A scientist from the Russian program has since been quoted as saying we shouldn't have done it, we did not learn enough from the mission to justify the death of the dog.
0: I don't want to know any more than that. It's terrible when you're talking to a group of school kids as well about this sort of stuff like like I do occasionally. You'll have this kid pipe up and go, you know, I heard like it died, she didn't make it back. And then you got to sort of explain the death of this, this brave little dog to a group of grade ones. And
3: France, instead of dogs thought that cats were the way to go, because they already had research
2: programs using cats. Also, cats generally, interestingly, were thought to be better suited to the isolation of space. This is Kerry the Historian from the Australian Space Agency again. These are all very small spacecraft and in fact the capsule in which Felicet was going to travel was going to be very small. And cats, as we know, like to hide away in small spaces. You know, they love getting in boxes, don't they? So it was also thought that cats would be best suited to this small confined environment in which the experimental space cat was going to have to travel.
3: This cat must have had such a calm temperament or been desperate for food or something. Because if you've ever tried to pick up a cat that's in a laundry basket, let alone launch one into the stratosphere, you'll know cats know how to
2: assert their own will. They actually started confining them for periods of time so that the cat would be used to not moving. Then they began to accustom them to the fact that there would be shaking a lot of vibration during launch. There'd be sounds, you know, loud noises from the actual roar of the takeoff of the rocket. A cat designated C-341 was chosen
3: for the task. She was a tuxedo with large bright eyes and a grumpy little mouth. A former stray who took a car, plane, train and helicopter to get to the rocket launch site in Algeria. She already had wires implanted into her brain. She was trained to sit in a little box with her head poking out. And then it was into a tiny compartment and the tremendously
2: terrifying experience of liftoff. She'd have felt without, of course, understanding it, but she'd have felt the gravity uh, increasing on her as the rocket was thrusting up into the sky as well. And then, of course, she was in a suborbital flight but she did experience weightlessness at the top of the ballistic trajectory. And then the spacecraft's now falling back toward the Earth and presumably she would have felt that sensation of falling, especially as gravity built up again. I wonder if she
3: had the urge to flip her body, to twist and have her feet going towards the ground.
2: Then the parachutes are released and that'll pull the capsule up short as it catches the air and slows it down and then she drifts down to the ground.
3: The cat did have these electrical wires going into its brain so that they could track some of the activity. But what were they actually trying to find out?
2: They were particularly interested in um, her reflexes. So they actually even did some stimulation of the muscles to you know, make her leg twitch and things like that let it be known that stimulation here is another word for small electrical shocks. They were particularly interested in um, her reflexes to see how how a living being reacted in space, you know, how quickly the nerve responses and things were. Because, again, when Felicet made her flight, there'd still only been a handful of people who had actually flown into space and particularly into orbit. So there still wasn't a lot of information available about, you know, how quickly people's reflexes reacted in space.
3: So this little cat made it all the way up and all the way back still alive?
2: Yep. And then, of course, she had to be picked up and carried back by helicopter to the uh, launch base and then transferred back to France. So she had that reverse trains, planes and automobiles experience <laughs> of, of going back to the laboratories in France.
3: And it was the media who called her Felix, which was then changed to Felicette because the cat was female. But before you think that this was a happy ever after,
2: it wasn't. Very sadly, a couple of months later, they operated to remove the electrodes in her brain. Um... And they actually wanted to study the brain itself. So, unfortunately, she was um, she was euthanized, which you know is is very sad. It would have been li- it would have been nice to see her live out her life. And
3: for Americans, it wasn't dogs or cats, but primates that they sent swirling into the upper atmosphere, and that included all sorts of creatures. Including a suite of macaques.
0: They had this series of V 2 rockets again, the ones they confiscated after World War II. And they called each of these missions Albert 1, Albert 2, Albert 3, Albert 4. And each of the monkeys on board was also nicknamed Albert 1, Albert 2, Albert 3, Albert 4. Um, unfortunately, Albert 1 died. He suffocated, maybe even before the actual launch. Albert 2, though, made it into space.
3: Made a suborbital flight.
0: But he didn't survive the journey back.
3: The parachute failed. Then there was Albert 3, who died. The whole craft exploded just below the beginning of space. And Albert 4, who made it past the Kármán line, almost 11 kilometres above the Earth, became the second mammal in space, and then fell to Earth and died when there was another parachute failure. Albert 5, actually called Yorick, He had 11 mice on board with him. He went to space, survived the landing, then died two hours later. The mice died too. They all overheated in the capsule as it lay in the New Mexico sun, waiting for the recovery squad to arrive. But possibly the most famous of all the non-human primates was Ham. He was wild caught in Cameroon as a baby, and he was only about four when he was strapped down, placed in a capsule on a rocket, and launched.
1: that was the idea. Could they be doing things that required cognitive attention, solving problems and so on? Would chimps be able to do that? And if they could do it, we could be more confident that humans could do
3: it. John Gluck is an ethicist. He tells me that the chimps were trained to respond to a stimulus. Yes, there's that word again. To avoid being shocked, they had to push buttons or manipulate levers or solve problems. Ham was followed by another chimp named Enos.
1: They were shot up there, performed on their experiments, and they continued to perform accurately even when they continued to get the shocks because there was a breakdown in the equipment. My friend, the veterinarian who worked at NASA, who called to me when they went to fish Enos out of the ocean, Phil said, if you've ever seen a pissed off chimpanzee, this was one. And he said, you know, this chimp was just furious about having performed adequately and correctly, but yet having been punished for several hours, flying in space and getting shots to his feet. But. Um,
3: well, in other contexts, that would be called torture.
1: Yes, it would. Yes, it would.
3: Here's Sarah Lestrange from ABCRN talking about Ham.
0: There are famous pictures of Ham after his return to Earth which show him grinning from ear to ear. Seemingly happy that the mission was a success, but primatologist Jane Goodall has a different interpretation of those images. That is the
2: most terror I have ever seen on the face of any chimpanzee, ever. That photograph is shocking. So word got around that this wasn't joy, it was fear. So the organisation wanted to prove that actually Ham did enjoy his training and everything. So they arranged a press conference. They brought out Ham and there was his capsule, which he'd entered many, 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 many times before. Four men couldn't get him in.
3: If anyone's going to know about chimp emotions and reactions, I suppose it's probably going to be Jane Goodall, eh? This meeting is being recorded. So who is this American chap? Hello. Hi, John. I can. How are you? Well, John Gluck is a professor emeritus now, but in 1972, he was experimenting on animals, specifically non-human primates. He was part of an elite neuroscience program and had been tasked with setting up a new lab.
1: Around 1972, I get a phone call from somebody Holloman Air Force Base was the home of the Chimp in Space program. Say, well, the Chimps in Space program was over, and uh, would I like the equipment or the animals? So I drive down, and here's millions and millions of dollars worth of equipment. And But I got, also got a chance to see the chimpanzees that were still. Alive, that were all wild-caught. There were hundreds of them, and the housing of these animals, consistent with the way things were done then, were basically prison cells, or about the size of prison cells. I remember going through one of the rooms, and they had a white line, I think, down the middle, and you were supposed to walk on that white line between cages on either side of you. And it was arranged so that the animals couldn't hit you with feces and saliva, which they were not averse to try to hit you with. And when I was driving home, um, and I was driving home with that veterinarian that I mentioned to you earlier, Brett Snyder, neither of us could understand what we saw in terms of the horrific, conditions under which these animals were being kept. And um, and I began at that point to have another thought like, I wonder what people think when they look at my life, And uh, they probably feel something quite similar.
3: This was one of the pushes that ended up dislodging John Gluck from his neuroscience career and towards a career in analysing the ethics around the use of animals in science. He's written about it in his book Voracious Science and Vulnerable Animals. And so, in his opinion, is it even possible to send any life forms into space ethically?
1: I mean, take, for example, a mouse in a cage in a biomedical laboratory. The cage it's in is about 280 fold smaller than its natural habitat and so I I would think it would be virtually impossible hmm. to uh, to to do that work ethically if what you mean by ethics is that you're you're paying attention to the needs of the animal as the animal and trying to create an environment that is, supportive of, of the capabilities that animal is constructed of. We're infants, ethically, when it comes to what we know is required for a variety of animal species that we coexist with.
3: Okay. I'm finding all of this hard and I can't deny it. Why? Why do this exploration? Why send animals who can't give consent into space? Well, I put that to Kerry from the Space Agency.
2: Ultimately, if we're going to establish permanent settlements beyond the Earth, we're going to need animals around us. We need animals for food. You know, we want animals for pets. We need plants as well for food and also for uh, helping to generate oxygen. And so there's still an ongoing interest in understanding what the long-term effects of space conditions are or the conditions on the moon for example on plants and animals how can we create i guess you might call them you know ecosystems where we carry small animals say like hamsters or guinea pigs which are edible they're also companion animals but they can provide, you know, their excrement can help to provide some of the fertiliser for the crops that you're growing, so that you're actually getting this loop, which is also providing you with the nutrition and the oxygen that your crew need.
3: I mean, they won't have DoorDash on Mars, so we'll have to create a small version of the ecosystems that we already have on Earth to survive, and that means that there will be some animals that don't get a choice in it. They are going to space. Maybe we could just protect what we have here on earth instead. You know, chicken and the egg.
0: <laughs> yeah, so this chicken egg experiment was fascinating. It was actually sponsored by KFC. <laughs> yeah, so I show this photo in my full Talks of an incubator, and kids don't know it's an incubator. It's just this box with a glass lid and numbers on the side. But then they go, hey, there's Colonel Sanders' face on the outside of this box. What's going on? Like, did they send some KFC snack packs up to the astronauts in space? Did they get, like, Uber Eats or whatever? But then I tell them, no, 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 it was, it was an experiment that a, a kid in Year 8 invented.
3: His name was John Bollinger, and he wanted to send eggs to space. He was 22 by the time they actually sent the
0: eggs up into space, though. Not all of the eggs hatched, but um, a lot of them did. And one of them was a boy egg called Kentucky
3: <laughs> um, he was a rooster.
0: <laughs> yeah. And so he grew up in the Louisville Zoo in the state of Kentucky and became this minor chicken celebrity um, for the rest of his days. A
3: <laughs> Minor chicken celebrity. There you go. The short, non-complete history of animals in space. We've gone nowhere near spiders, E. coli or even fish that have been launched. Fish. I'm Ann Jones and the What The Duck producer is Patria Ladgrove, script supervision by Joel Werner. We make this program on unceded Ghana and Around country.
2: Hello, Caddy. Pretty incredible experience for the cat. What are you doing?
3: You want to be on the radio? You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.